Okay. Could you please turn with me to Psalm 132? Psalm 132. If you have a smartphone, we are using the ESV, the English Standard Version. Uh, Psalm 132. And um, if you are a visitor with us today, uh, this is a, uh, a very intense psalm. And I've chosen to finish our series with it because I wanted some more time to study it myself. So you will be getting uh, your money wor- money's worth this morning. Um, this psalm is patterned after 2 Samuel chapter 7, which is one of the most important uh, uh, text in the Old Testament. And this psalm recalls David, King David's desire to build the temple as a house for the Lord. And then it recalls God's promise to David and his household. We'll see that soon. And this, it's really, it all comes together that a hopeful message for us today, and it even speaks into the, the mission of the church. That's where we want to take this to today, to hope for us and the mission of the church. Will you, let's read together the 18 verses of Psalm 132. A song of ascent. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardship he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jah. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, Do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath, from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I prepared a lamp for my anointed. 
His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. This is God's word. Let's pray together and seek the Lord's help. Holy Spirit, we, we pray that you would illuminate to our hearts this morning the scriptures that you've spoken. It does not immediately seem relevant to all of us, but because it comes from the mouth of God, it is important for us that we might know the truth, that the truth might set us free and that we might be equipped for every good work. Holy Spirit, we pray and ask that you would impart to us the conviction that we need, the edification that we need, and that all of us might leave here having learned from you and having been encouraged in the grace of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This psalm, we do not know exactly who wrote it, but if we could pick anyone, it was likely Solomon, King Solomon, Saul, David, Solomon, or someone affiliated with Solomon. And we know this because part of this psalm, verses 8 to 10, are quoted by Solomon in Second Chronicles 6. Second Chronicles 6 being the part of your Bible that you don't read when you're doing the Bible in the year, that part. It's very wonderful text, actually, when you, when you dive into them. And this is one of the Psalms of Ascent. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And the Psalms of Ascent were Psalms sung by pilgrims that did not live in Jerusalem. These would have been Jewish people that lived outside of Jerusalem. And at least three times a year, they would go towards Jerusalem for one of the big festivals like Pentecost or Passover. And so you've got this situation where you've got these pilgrims walking towards Jerusalem and they're retelling the story here. They're thinking about David building the temple. They're thinking about David bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. They're thinking about God's promises to David and his line. And so this psalm appears to be the king of Israel asking the Lord to remember his promises to King David and his line. Remember your promises to the people, specifically through the line of Israel's king. Now, as I tried to put myself back in those people's shoes, if this psalm was read and sung at the time of Solomon, It would have been at the high point of Israel's history. This would have been a nation walking in God's blessing. And this psalm would have been just a wonderful, you know, just excitement and and would have just brought great joy. But to perhaps understand the weight of all these promises that are tied up in Psalm 132, We need to realize that Psalm 132 is in book 5 of the Psalms. Okay, So the Psalms are divided into 5 books. There are 150 of them total, 5 books. And it was only put into book 5 after the exile. Hundreds of years after Solomon. 
And so what this means is that while the people are walking towards Jerusalem for the sake of, of worshipping God, they're rehearsing all these great promises. There would have been no king in Israel. That temple, Solomon's temple, the temple that Solomon built, which is talked about here in Psalm 132, that had been burned to the ground by the Babylonians. Reciting Psalm 132 in the 4th century before Christ meant recalling promises that were no longer visible. You're thinking about a temple that no longer exists as it did. And you're thinking about a king that's no longer there on the throne. These people were walking by faith, not by sight. And they, the only thing that manages to hold this all together is trusting in the fact that God never changes and that when He promises something, He holds true to His word. Walk by faith not by sight. We can divide this text up very simply if you look at it. The first nine verses are David's oath to God, David's promise to God. And then the second part from verse 10 to 18 is God's oath to David. Okay, So David's oath to God, God's oath to David. That's how the psalm divides up. And so this Psalm begins by recalling David, this great king of Israel, how much effort David put into seeking God's exaltation. Saul was, of course, Israel's first king, but he did two wrong things. Firstly, he refused to worship God as God asked, and secondly, he also refused to be obedient to the command to cleanse the land that God alone would be the only God worshipped in Canaan. Saul was not Israel's forever king. David, of course, was a, a, a frail man. When people say to me, I'm, I'm a great sinner, so always remind yourself that David managed to do even more. He slept with Bathsheba, and then had her husband killed. There was a piece of evidence, of course, and that was a child that came from that union. David was a, a man who sinned in enormous ways, but we're also told that he was a man after God's own heart. He desired to see God exalted and worshipped in the land. And we see this great demonstration of this in Psalm 132 in verses 6 and 7 which is that essentially the very first thing David does when he's anointed king is he goes back to the place where he grows up, Ephrathah, and he gets the Ark of the Covenant and brings it back to Jerusalem. He grabs it. The Ark of the Covenant was a, a, a big gold box that contained the, the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. And that those Ten Commandments were obviously what governed God's relationship with Israel. 
And God told them, if you obey my laws, you will live long on the land. And if you disobey my laws, you will be exiled from the land. This picture of God's relationship with his people and his promise to them to bless them in the land of Canaan. The people of Israel foolishly pulled the Ark of the Covenant out in battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines, when they defeated them, took the Ark of the Covenant and took it right back to their own temple until things started going wrong and they started believing that the God of Israel was cursing them and therefore it was the Ark was taken outside. And so David hears that the Ark is in the fields of Jah, literally Kenath-Jerim, and in 2 Samuel 5-6, to he brings the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. Much fanfare, so much so Saul's daughter is mad. And uh, she gets cursed. You can read about that at the end of 2 Samuel 6. And that brings us then to 2 Samuel chapter 7, which really gives us the context for Psalm 132. It's David's vow to God. David because he's a successful king, because he starts becoming this well-liked king, many people seek to bless him as well and encourage him. And David becomes convicted that he's living in this enormous, ornate house made out of cedar wood. And yet God's ark, the covenant, is just dwelling in a little tent. David becomes convicted that this is not right. God gets that little tent, and I get this enormous house. I must build a house for the Lord. And he says he won't sleep, he won't rest. He'll do absolutely anything it takes until he finds a place and he makes a house for the Lord. The place is Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And he has this Found a sense of zeal that God would be worshipped and exalted. And I was trying to think what it must have been like for David. He says, God, I'm going to do a great, great thing for you. I'm going to make you a house. I'm going to make this wonderful temple. And you, it's just going to be, it's going to be a great thing. It's going to be the best thing. David's got the absolute best of intentions here. Why would God say no? That's what God says. No. 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 Second Chronicles 22. David explains to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God, but the Lord came to me saying, You have shed much blood and have waged many wars. You shall not build a house in my name because you've shed so much blood before me on the earth. Because David had been a man of war and there had been so much unrest around him, God says to him, no, you don't get to do it. Solomon gets to build this temple, not David. And I think there's a piece of application in there for us. And I, I, I've seen this myself. I know, I know, I've experienced this myself. Sometimes we have these best-made plans, do we not? I'll do this great thing for God. I'll do this great thing for His church. I will, I, 
I'm going to do this. You plan it all out. You think of it, I'm going to be a missionary. I'm going to do this. I'm going to start up some kind of ministry or whatever it is that you think of. And then all of a sudden, that door just gets slammed in your face. And the answer is no. Put something else for you. And the thing to remember in all of this is that God is good. And when He says no, it's for our good and the sake of His glory. David's oath to God was rejected. It's important to know. David was rejected by God in his plan. But God didn't leave him alone. Instead, God gives him this great promise that we know as the Davidic Covenant. And we see that in verses 11 and 12. I'm not going to reread it. But the, the language here matches up. It's quite cool. David says, I'm going to build you a house, Lord. And the Lord says to David, No, I'm going to build you a house. Not the same kind of house. One's made out of stone, one's a temple. But David's house, that God would build him, would be a household line, a dynasty. I'm going to give you a legacy of kings. And we see two aspects in this covenant towards David here in verses 11 and 12. The first one is an unconditional aspect. An unconditional aspect. His sons would be kings and one would rule on his throne forever. Unconditional. It's going to happen. Nothing can stop it from happening. But there was a conditional side to this, and we see that in verse 12. There was a conditional aspect, and he said that the one that would rule forever, the one that would sit on the throne and be the eternal king of Israel, would have to remain on the throne because he is obedient to my covenant, which is the Mosaic covenant, and my testimony, which is simply another word for law. And so what that means is, God makes this great promise to them, but tied up in that promise, the king that rules forever needs to be an obedient king to God's law. Was that David? No. Was that Solomon? No. Was that Josiah or any one of the other kings? No. It was not Solomon, but Solomon does get the privilege of building the temple to be the dwelling place of God. And verses 8 to 10, that bit where it says, Arise, O Lord, go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. They're quoted directly in Solomon's dedication of the temple, 2 Chronicles 6, 41 to 42. Go read that story in your own time. Solomon quotes Psalm 132 when the temple is open. So David's zeal for the house of God is not ignored, but it's ultimately passed along to his son. And there in Jerusalem was built this massive temple up on the hill, a massive picture to the presence of God. God is with his people Israel. There is his temple to prove it. 
And so we must ask, and this is why I've, I've chosen this for this week, so I needed all the time I could possibly have. As I read Second Samuel 7, as I read Psalm 132, I was asking myself, what is the connection here between these two promises? If David says, I want to build a house for God, and God says, no, I'm going to build a house for you, David, they don't seem very connected. Yeah, they're the same word, house, but they're, they're very different things. What's the connection between this promise to the kings and this promise to the temple? Something ties them together. See in verse 8, Solomon calls God to go to his resting place. When the temple is dedicated, a glory cloud filled the temple. God was there. And verse 13 and verse 14, the Lord says that he chooses Zion as his resting place forever. What ties us all together is one word, and it's rest. It's what ties the temple and the kings together. Rest. It's, it's everywhere. If you read everything related to these promises, everything related to the temple, the word rest is just absolutely everywhere. The word rest doesn't mean simple inactivity. Like when I rest, I do nothing. At the most, I watch Netflix. Okay, that's just, that, that, that's rest. That's not talking about that. When the scriptures here are speaking of rest, there's an element of triumph. There's an element of power. But God completes what he set out to do, and then he sits down and he rests. Rest is a picture of God's sovereignty over absolutely everything. If I could compare it to anything in a human sense, you know when the All Blacks won the uh, Rugby World Cup every four years, they, 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 no South Africans in this room to really rile up. Oh, who got, yeah, well, should we do it? Wow, sorry, my bad. Um, <laughs> Jesus still loves you. Um, <laughs> I was born there too, so I can't. The All Blacks won the Rugby World Cup. They grab the cup, go into that changing room, and sit down and rest. You know what I'm saying? Triumph. We've won. Now I, now I rest. That's the language here. And this, this, this language of rest, as I said, it's everywhere. In 2 Samuel 7, right there at the beginning, it says that David doesn't desire to build this temple until he's had rest from all of his enemies. In First Chronicles 22 and verse 9, David, when David just said, I've been a man of war, I can't build the temple. He then says to Solomon, he says, The Lord told me, Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give him peace and quiet to Israel in his days. Wow. Solomon was allowed to build the temple because he was a man of rest. And Solomon doesn't begin construction of the temple, 1 Kings chapter 5 tells us, until God gave him rest on every side from his enemies, then he began building. 
and it gets better. We know how God created the world in six days and he rested on the seventh. Well, the temple really patterned after God's work of creation. The temple was constructed in seven years and it was dedicated in the seventh month on the seventh day during the seven-day-long Feast of Booths. And to go along with that, the centerpiece of the temple, which is mentioned here, is the Ark of the Covenant, also called the Footstool of God. 1 Chronicles 28 calls it the Footstool of our God. David says, I've made preparations for the So this temple stands as a picture of God's rest. His absolute triumph. He puts his feet up once he has conquered all of his enemies through his king. So when the obedient king, with the help of God, has rest from all of his enemies, this temple serves as a picture of God's presence and utter superiority over everybody else. And so that connects the king, the temple, rest. And so it makes complete and utter sense that when Israel's kings were disobedient and as a result their enemies came in especially the Babylonians what followed was the destruction of the temple because there was no longer any rest in the land. But while that temple stands It is a picture of God's blessing to Israel and that they are chosen above all other people. Let me let us tie this all together. There is no way to understand Psalm 132. The significance of this psalm unless we Tie it together in the person of Jesus Christ. It does not make sense any other way. So I want to tie four things together. The king, the temple, rest, and Zion. Those four things. Let's tie them together. The first one is on the king. Jesus is the true obedient king. Jesus is the one that that Davidic covenant is pointing towards. Jesus is the one who never sinned and is therefore able to sit on the throne. When when Jesus came into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday, the little the Pharisees were mad, but the little children cried out, "Hosanna to the Son of David!" Jesus is the Son of David, the eternal King. In John chapter two. So that's Jesus as king. Now the temple. In John chapter 2, remember the story? My favorite, probably my favorite Bible story growing up, not David and Goliath, because the big guy got killed. Um, But Jesus goes into the temple, fashions a whip, strikes the moneylenders, flips over the table. I really like that story. Okay? Hear these words from John chapter 2. 
Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered as it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Who had zeal that God's house, the temple, would be built? David. Jesus had zeal for God's house, and that's why he cleansed the temple. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, Herod's temple. And you will raise it up in three days? And John interprets all of this for us. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus is the true temple through whom we go to worship God. He reconciles us to God. He cleanses us from our sins. We're going to look at this more in Hebrews over the coming months. At the cross, Jesus triumphs over sin, Satan, death, and hell. On the third day, he rose from the grave as the true temple, as the scriptures say. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. No one else has done this. And he sat down. Having rest from all his enemies. And so therefore, wherever the true temple is, wherever Jesus is, there Zion is. That's where the presence of God is. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6 says that God has raised us up and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. With Christ. That is the place of the Christian. We are seated with Christ. We are so in union with Him that we are with Him. We are protected. And so He blesses His people from heaven by sending All these promises, let's just go very quickly through verses 15 to 18. All these promises of blessing in verses 15 to 18 are fulfilled in Christ. He is the bread of life who gives true sustenance. He turns his followers into priests. That's what we read in 1 Peter chapter 2. He clothes us with salvation and joy. Verse 17, the horn of David, the horn is this picture of the king's power. And it's quoted in Luke chapter 1 verse 69 by Zechariah and is applied to Christ. That Christ is the horn of David, the power of David. The lamp, look at verse 17, the lamp for his anointed. Jesus Christ is the light of the world, world who brings the sight of salvation and leads us to God. In Revelation 21, this picture of the new Jerusalem and the temples, it says specifically, the lamp is the Lamb. The lamp is Jesus Christ who gives light to a dark world. Verse 18, all of his enemies will be clothed with shame. And it says that he is crowned with honor himself as a king and he crowns us, his followers, with righteousness and salvation. All of it is tied up to him. 
how do we then apply this? How do we apply this? I want to do two things, two pieces of application for us. The first one is hope. The first one is hope. Hope, if you think about it this way, is so often used negatively. There are a lot of young people in this room. You all have hopes and dreams, do you not? I, I, I would hope so. I remember being 18, 19, 20. I got to 22. I wasn't married like I'd hoped. I wasn't rich like I'd hoped. I certainly didn't have a nice car like I hoped. So often our hopes are unfulfilled. Hope is a, it's really a negative thing. When we say I hope, we never know if it's actually going to come true. Is that fair? The Christian hope is not negative. The Christian hope is positive. The Christian can hope perfectly. That's a big thing. Second Timothy chapter 2. If we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. And 1 Peter chapter 3. Sorry, First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. I view this as one of the most important parts of the Christian life that holds everything together. Hear these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The exiles that Peter wrote to, to encourage them, were struggling, they were suffering, and what does he do right at the start of 1 Peter? He says, your temple is in heaven. Your king is in heaven. Jesus Christ is your inheritance. Therefore, it's unfading, undefiled, imperishable, kept there. It's untouchable. And that's why Paul's able to say things like to live as Christ and to die as gain. Because it's untouchable. Kill my body. So what? I could be with Jesus. It'll be better for me. Who cares? If our king, if Christ is our king, and Christ is our true temple through whom we worship, and he is in heaven at the right hand of the Father, our king and our temple cannot be lost. Do you understand that? It was a calamity of calamities when Israel's king had his eyes gouged out and was taken off into prison, and the temple was burnt to the ground on the earthly Jerusalem. But the Jerusalem above is our mother, Paul says in Galatians 4, and therefore it cannot be touched. That is perfect hope. If you're a Christian, it's going to work out well for you, even if life is hard. It's 
especially if life is hard, actually. It's going to work out well. That's good. That's hope. And secondly, the mission of the church. Everyone quotes that, that 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you're not your own. You're bought with a price to glorify God with your body. I'm going to deal with this at some point again. We do not apply this to tattoos. We do not apply this to food. We do not apply this to anything else. It's saying, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Do not commit sexual immorality. That's the context. But the book we want, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Okay? We've been talking about the temple a lot. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 verse 5, you may know how you one ought to behave in the household of God. Is that word house? Which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. You, as a Christian, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The church, made up of lots of Christians, is the household of God. Made up of living stones. That's what 1 Peter chapter 2 says. Household. It is a temple made up with living stones. And Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, the chief stone. That this temple of living stones, these people who are the temple of the Holy Spirit, built into a big, beautiful building for God's glory. That's what Scripture says. You're the temple. We together are the temple. Christ is the true temple and He is the cornerstone. Okay. Psalm 1, this is for the mission of the church now. Psalm 132 has made one thing very clear. And that is, the king builds the temple. Does it not? The king builds the temple. Who's the king? Christ the king. What's the temple? The church made up of living stones, individual temples. Our job as the church is to help the king build his temple. I don't know whether you feel like this is novel or anything, but it's just there. Help the king build the household of God with living stones. That's what evangelism is. That's what mission is. Taking his enemies and slotting them right in, building this up as a wonderful demonstration of the presence of God on this earth to the glory of our Savior. So therefore, with our status secure, our hope secure, we seek the growth and the fame of Jesus' name as we share the good news of what he has done. Let's pray.